Hello, Black Swamp Podcast listeners. Thanks for tuning into our latest episode, number 38, with Ivan Trevino. If you've been listening regularly, thank you, and hopefully you've enjoyed dropping in on these conversations. If you're new to our series, also thank you for joining us, and feel free to travel back in time through our episodes. We've had a lot of great conversations with BSP artists, educators, and friends over the last few years. If you haven't already, feel free to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts. Then throw us some stars, the more the better, as this helps spread the word about our little podcast to more percussion enthusiasts like yourself. Before we get to our latest episode with Ivan, I want to say a few quick words about Dynamics Drums. If you're not familiar, Dynamics Drums is our line of drum set style snare drums. Uh, We use the same hardware, uh, raw materials, attention to detail, and manufacturing prowess as our orchestral snare drums, but with a few key differences, like our exclusive snappy snares, unique inlay in the unibody shells we make in-house, and custom auxiliary ballad snares for softer musical settings. Visit our website, linked in the show notes, to view more details and videos for our Dynamics Drums, where you can contact us to pre-order drums directly. We also have our snare units and some available stock drums on our Reverb store, so check that out as well. So, if you're unfamiliar with Ivan Trevino's compositions and work with The Big Trouble, it's definitely worth a Google. A diverse collection of musical genres, instrumentation, orchestration, and performance opportunities help make his projects accessible to both listen to and perform, with an ongoing thread of social awareness, inclusion, and equity. Ivan hasn't been on our artist-endorser roster long, but he's definitely one of those people that makes you feel uh, immediately comfortable, as if you've known each other really for years. Uh, Before moving on to our conversation, I did want to mention one of Ivan's latest projects, Co-Write. This is a book for composing music and exploring creativity. Uh, We touched on these topics during the episode, but I feel like I didn't give it, uh, didn't give this publication enough time at the end of our conversation. So Co-Write includes 15 musical ideas meant for musicians to explore, grow, and make their own. Uh, The book also includes audio tracks of each musical idea recorded by Ivan, along with a musical guide to help people as they create. Uh, Co-Write is intended for any musician with an interest in creating music from student to professional. We'll have a link to uh, his Co-Write publication in the show notes, which you can check out after listening to Ivan now. Good to see you. (laughs) Yeah, you too. And to hear you. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, I only had like uh, 10 or 15 minutes, so we've used up that time uh, troubleshooting. <laughs> <laughs> so so we got to go. Uh, no. Um, yeah, it's great to see you. I know we've met uh, via PASIC before, I think, in the past. So uh, it's great to see and talk to you again. Um, you, uh, you have a lot going on, my friend. Uh, a whole kind of collection of of percussion and like rock oriented projects and then obviously composing uh blog writing um uh you're a music ambassador i'm not sure what that entails but maybe we can <laughs> we can cover that a little bit sure. and then obviously you're active in other kind of social awareness and sort of equity and representation stuff so that's all basically things i wanted to try to touch on a little bit while we're talking um or well, hopefully you're doing more of the talking than I am, ultimately. Uh, but I always kind of like to get a little bit of backstory from guests. So if you don't mind taking a few minutes and sort of give me the the early Trevino years. I don't mind at all. Um, well, I had a really interesting musical upbringing because my dad was a musician and songwriter, mm-hmm. but not trained. He sort of learned how to play on his own and he played it in bands but those bands played by ear sure so that's sort of the musical world that i grew up in and i started playing drums in his uh, it was like a tejano gospel country western band (laughs) in south texas yeah uh, when i was like really little like two years old and um it was sort of church related so we would play a lot of church events we would travel all around texas and play like music festivals sure. um 
And I remember like packing my dad's big red van with gear and then we had a big trailer and it seemed like we were doing that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought that was normal, you know? I thought that's what people did. And um, as I grew up, you know, I started to realize that my upbringing was a little bit unusual and, and special in certain ways. And um, so I think, you know, even till today, like as I grew up playing non-classical music and I remember starting like punk bands in high school and writing music and sort of that being sort of an angst uh, outlet for me. Sure. Um, and having all of these sort of non-academic experiences um, and as they sort of combined themselves and met themselves with my classical training, um, I think that's sort of how, uh, you know, I was able to, to maybe develop uh, my particular sort of voice as a composer and as a performer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really always informed how I view music too. Um, but to go back, like um, I was playing in my dad's band for a long time, mainly drum set. And sorry to just to one immediate question already. Like what does playing drum set as a two-year-old in a Tejano band look like? <laughs> it, it looks like me standing up right. and not having a drum thrown because there, there weren't <laughs> any that, that were uh, small enough for me to sit on. And I played on like not little baby kits, you know? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so I, I, my dad bought me actually like a, a electric drum set, a D drum electric yeah. drum set. Um, when I was pretty young and um, yeah that's what that looked like and my dad it isn't a drummer but he taught me what he knew and my half-sister Deborah plays drums so she taught me a bit mm -hmm. and um, essentially like all of my family were all musicians so we would travel together um, so yeah it was awesome um, I loved playing I remember um, one of one of vi one of the vivid memories I have is like right before I would go up to play, I would always be sitting next to my mom in the audience who would travel with me, and she would like nudge me and say like, "Okay, discipline," like because I always <laughs> wanted to play more than I should have, you know. And yeah, that was right. a lesson that she instilled in me that I yeah. still think about a lot, even when I'm composing music. Like, right. how how can I simplify this? to make the musical idea come through in a very clear way. Um, so anyway, that's sort of what it, what it looked like. Um, and the second thing that is very vivid to me, and it doesn't really have a lot to do with making music, but my dad would always give me the microphone and he would say, I want you to introduce the songs. Wow. I want you to get used to, you know, talking to people in, in public and in person. And sure. that's, that's something that, that has always stuck with me too. And something that I try, like, you know, when I was teaching at uh, Baylor University and uh, still, I, you know, when I work with students via clinics and stuff, that's a thing that I always try to impart on them. It's like, it's mm -hmm. really important to not only communicate the music, but to communicate with words, what we're trying to do as musicians to mm -hmm. have a personal connection, you know? So anyway, there was a lot sort of rolled into my experience, but it wasn't anything that was forced on me. Like sure. I loved playing music and it's what I wanted to do. And as I got older, I remember junior high school, um, it was time to like choose an instrument and I was gonna do percussion, but like I saw what was happening and there was like no drum set <laughs> and it was <laughs> right. like way different. Yeah. So I decided to pick up saxophone and that's actually how I started to learn how to read music. Um, mm -hmm. And I played saxophone all the way through my sophomore year in high school. And I was mm -hmm. like planning on majoring in saxophone because I liked it. It was fun. And and then my junior year of high school, uh, my high school in Texas hired a percussion teacher named Philip McCoola. Philip uh, was an Eastman alum. I didn't know what Eastman was or anything. Like I just knew he went to some school right. that was far away. And he started a percussion ensemble, which my school didn't have. And one thing led to another. And, you know, like a month later, I quit saxophone and I was on my way to doing percussion all the time. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and eventually, like, I followed in his footsteps and I went to Eastman. And while I was there, I studied with John Beck and I started writing a little bit of music. 
I miss songwriting. You know, I was doing a lot right. of that in high school. Um, I wasn't a composition major. I just something that I, I like to do. And um, and and yeah. And then there's many parts of the story. Like <laughs> I met some cellists that play in a band called Break of Reality that asked me okay. to play drums. That was in 2003. So we're still a band today, 18 years later. And yeah. We traveled and tour, and we still do that now. Obviously, like we've taken a bit of a hiatus. Right. Um, but uh, so, Break of Reality is going great. We moved to New York City after I graduate Eastman. We are playing in Central Park and in the subways and playing real gigs too. And like we're making ends meet. We sold like something like 40,000 albums in the subways and in Central Park wow. in a year, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we had some member changes. Michael Burrett got the job at Eastman, who right. I had known for a long time uh, through some summer seminars that I attended. And um, I studied with him. And then I graduated with my master's in 2010. And um, I started writing music again. That's when I wrote my second piece, Into the Air, which is a marimba duo. And... Um, I started doing a ton of stuff, man. Like yeah. I was doing school of rock teaching, teaching songwriting, teaching percussion, uh, drum set, making sandwiches before that <laughs> for a little bit um, right. until things started sort of getting going. And eventually like composing started to snowball a little bit right. because of YouTube and all sorts of stuff. And start, people started asking me to, to come, uh, commissioned me to write the music and eventually it got to a place where I didn't have to do a lot of that um, teaching type of teaching that I, I didn't, you know, my, I don't think my heart was really into as much, although sure. I, I was happy to do it. Um, and I started to focus just on writing and fast forward till today. That's what I do. Like my job is come to my studio and uh, depending on what projects are due, <laughs> right. um, work on those things. And when there aren't projects due, sometimes it's just getting to create and sit here and uh, try to make some music that maybe yeah. people would want to play. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, that's sort of <laughs> how I ended yeah. up here. No, you pretty much touched on a hundred percent of what I want to sort of dig into now, like sort of unpack some of that. Yeah. Like definitely creativity is up there after, um, I mean, this morning while I was working and, you know, making some notes for this conversation, I started listening to um, Break a Reality first and then mm -hmm. The Big Trouble with Andrew Worden. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like this stuff is creative. And it's it, it's like kind of fusing all these these different elements, obviously, that you're interested in um, sort of more rock oriented um, type things, but classical music and contemporary percussion. Um so maybe let's start there. Uh, so it sounds like the break of reality was was kind of one of those first projects. Mm -hmm. And you already meant, mentioned that you kind of touched base with cellists at, at Eastman. Mm -hmm. um, and then that began to develop. And you're still in contact now. Does that mean you will travel to New York and perform with them or they'll kind of come your way or yeah, how does that well, work sort that's, of logistically? That's a great question. Well, it's gotten to a point now where we have people scattered around the country who sort of have <laughs> a roster of people right? and we get together for performances, you know, all across, uh, all across the States and, and abroad as well. Um, and that's how it works now. I think when we were younger, we all lived, in similar proximity in New York City. And as the band started to develop and sort of get better performance opportunities mm -hmm. uh, and also develop our own projects, we decided that we could live wherever we want. And it's probably better that way because when we get <laughs> together and we see right. each other, we're, we're like happy to be there. And it's yeah, we haven't sure. been traveling all the time, which can sometimes get a little stressful, um, yeah. although really fun. We talked a little bit about this uh, earlier in your intro, or you mentioned it, but uh, Break of Reality became um, ambassadors for the U.S. State Department during the Obama years, uh, musical ambassadors. 
So essentially we would travel and we've traveled to probably 12 or 13 different countries abroad and sort of use music as a way to build a connection with people in other countries and also mm -hmm. um, to develop uh, relationships and to um, collaborate with musicians in these countries too who are playing instruments that we might have never even seen before, you know? Sure. Um, so it's just sort of a, a, a music as a pathway to, um, to develop, uh, you know, good relationships with other countries and right. that that's incredible too and, and that's been a big part of the breaking reality story i think is doing yeah. um, that sort of work with the state so, department yeah how does that even transpire does somebody at the state department like see you playing or you're just sort of already active and it happens organically like a lot of things or do you reach out to them oh that's a great question so they actually have oh thanks two in a row that's awesome <laughs> i'm off to a good start <laughs> no it is <laughs> um the state department has a program called american music abroad which um is a, a program that anybody can audition for um and a lot of bands a lot of ensembles will audition to um participate in this program and then it, they select just a handful to have um for a particular calendar year's roster hmm. and we were selected uh, at the very be you know our first year i think was 2014 if that sounds right and um we um we we they've sort of invited us back over the years um, okay which has been really amazing we started out in kazakhstan turkmenistan azerbaijan and now we've been to mongolia south korea philippines um japan like yeah. uh haiti uh, a, a ton of brazil also yeah a ton of places um through this program um and it's been great like it's been some of the most memorable experiences that i've had it's just sure. nice to play music for like especially like we went to turkmenistan which essentially is like the second most closed off country in the world next to north korea mm. so when we played there like people don't really meet many american musicians mm. ever so for them, it was like, um, you know, they, they were extremely grateful to have any sort of musical sort of opportunity, um, which is, yeah, so it, it just, it, that's been a, an awesome part of, of our story as a band. Yeah, for sure. Uh, to be able to travel, like, to all those different countries, like, where you wouldn't get to otherwise, and then play music, like, part of that experience, I'm sure, is amazing. Who, so who kind of sets all that up? Obviously, somebody at the state department or kind of organizes that are there you know are there counterparts of yours sort of in the other countries that you visit and that's all sort of set up that's exactly right so like there's consulates and embassies in these other countries that coordinate with people at the state department within the american music abroad program mm -hmm. some of those people in that program travel with us too so they're sort of a quasi tour manager um so yeah, that's how it works. So they're they're in connection with uh, representatives at the embassy, who then coordinate our travel, our gear, our right. sound checks. Like it's a very well run program. Sure. Um, and and every situation is different. Like some yeah. situations are incredibly well run, and others they're you know they're they're not used to hosting as many concerts. So. Right. Um, it does. That's my initial thought is sometimes it could be a logistical nightmare, especially if you're, I mean, maybe you're working largely with musicians or people that are familiar with performance, like, and not just like coordinating and, and traveling. So, you know, if you have to try to explain the intricacies of, of whatever piece you're playing or what your instrumentation or your needs are, maybe there's sort of a loss of of communication or get that gets lost in translation. Oh sometimes. my gosh, totally. <laughs> sound, sound checks on these tours are typically like twice as long as they should be. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but, uh, so you're definitely right about that. Yeah. And also like, um, since we're taking so many flights, I'm not, I play a lot of drum set in the band and I'm not sure. traveling with my drum set. Yeah. So depending on, on where we are, um, the, the drum set situation could be great or yeah. it, it could like, I, I need to spend an hour tuning <laughs> so <laughs> right. it. All, it all depends. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I guess transitioning a little bit to big trouble, uh, which is not the same, but sort of somewhat similar, I guess is in the sense that it's 
there's kind of this rock element, but then there's contemporary or like classical sort of percussion element and there's vocal. So there's sort of this multi-genre, multi-instrumental aspect. Like, can you tell me how that developed with Drew? And then I guess ultimately, I mean, whenever I hear music like that, I just think, how did it, how did it come together? Like creatively, like not necessarily who had this idea and that idea, but like, how do you collaborate? Like, how do you kind of come up with these ideas and uh, sort of go back and forth and rehearse them or come up with concepts and ideas and yeah. stuff like the sort of creative aspect of it is very interesting to me. Well, Drew first, uh, who's a really good friend of mine, also a Phoenix Suns fan. So he's really having a moment right now. <laughs> Um, he reached out to me, um, about a project that we ended up sort of sitting down for, um, we had a beer at PASIC and he said, Hey, I have this idea for like this big percussion band. I think it'd be really fun and I'd love to collaborate. I feel like, uh, he, you know, he said our, our musical interests are similar in terms of sort of non-classical sounds and genres and, and I remember talking and we decided like we want to have a singer and which sort of like with break of reality i love playing in that band but i really miss having a vocalist so that was one of the things that we wanted to include with big trouble um so after our beer at pasic um drew applied for a grant in boston through the boston foundation sort of pitching this idea for this big percussion band that included some music video components and some uh, recording components and some live performance components as well. And the grant was accepted, which was really great. Um, and that sort of enabled us to take some first steps. Now, creatively, to get to your point, essentially what we did was we rented a bunch of gear in Boston and we put it in this big arts garage that we also rented. And we set everything up. And we had like no preconceived musical ideas. Mm -hmm. I remember getting everything set up and sound checking stuff. And I was at the electric keyboard. I played some chords and he was like, it sounds great. <laughs> and, okay. and I was like, well, uh, like it was a chord progression, I think just three or four chords or something. Um, and he, uh, we started just talking and, and saying like, what could this, you know, what could this idea, uh, what does it need? And we started thinking a lot about contrasts, like contrasting ideas in terms of color and sound. So like we had these dark keyboard chord chords happening and he went to the glockenspiel, turned his mallets over and started like playing rhythmic rattan stuff. And it sounded really beautiful and sort of shimmery. And we had like the foundation for what we thought could be the seed of a piece and that turned into our uh, song called red white blue orange um and it sort of just happened that way um you know there were drums set up so i went to the drum set he was playing the chords and um it sort of yeah. just grew that way we didn't have a plan and i don't know if that's a good or bad thing <laughs> right but it worked for us and sure i feel like when we get in a room together drew and i um we can work quickly and I think because we share like this similar musical vocabulary, mm -hmm. um, things tend to um, ha happen in a quick sort of way. And we don't have to think too much. One of the things I always think about is like classical musicians sometimes overthink things. It's almost, uh, uh, I don't know, it, it's, it, it happens a lot in terms of even how we program music. Like we play one recital a year <laughs> or something right. like, and we, everything is focused on this one thing all of our chips are in that sort of basket, so to speak. But yeah. um, I think with Drew and I, like we sort of just, let's just see what happens. And we're not gonna take everything we do as like the end all ultimate thing. We're just right. gonna continue to create. And that's been a great process for us. And he's just a, a joy to collaborate with. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the sort of chips in one basket idea, like we have that same conversation at work sometimes, Nathan, and I, Nathan runs our social media and then we collaborate, collaborate a lot on like marketing stuff and, um, uh, you know, video content and whatever's going on. Um, and he and I will, it's like, 
I think you're right. It's sort of the musicianship in us, like wants everything to be uh, really precise and kind of perfect right mm -hmm. away or when we put it out. And we do definitely have to tell ourselves, okay, we, we just need to um, shoot. There was a term that you used uh, earlier. We, like we basically need to take a pause or take a breath and mm -hmm. be like, it, it's, okay. it's okay. We can keep doing more. We can keep growing. It can keep getting better. We don't have to hold ourselves to like this, like the highest standard, like right away, immediately, like this is going to transform. Uh, so I think, yeah. I think that's exactly, um, that's exactly right. And I think we hold ourselves to that standard right. because that is sort of embedded within the genre yeah. that we live in, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and, and in our sense, I mean, product wise, like, yeah, we don't want to um, come out with something that's sort of subpar right off the bat. So there's definitely amount of like attention to detail and high quality, like with our products. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're not marketing geniuses. You know, we didn't go to right. do we, we're not like we didn't go to business school and marketing school and stuff. So we're learning a lot of this on the fly. I'm the last I've been working for Black Swamp for 21 years full time now so it's all kind of like learning as you go and same thing with with nathan and jamel um who we bounce a lot of ideas off of and also like we're just sort of learning as we go so if we make it better every time then that's sort of how we grow yeah and some and sometimes um even with writing music or performing music i, I i'm a i love uh watching sports like basketball i watched a soccer game last night usa mexico and Sometimes like having those moments where you don't quite make the right decision hmm. can sometimes be helpful in the long run, you know? Sure. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a, there's a lot at play there, I think. But um, I think in terms of, of, in that this attitude has really helped me to like, I want to care for every phrase that I write. I want to care for every note that I write, but at the same time, I don't want to compose in a way that does not allow for some, freedom within the performance of that work you know mm -hmm. like if if i go on youtube or if people are sending me videos of pieces of mine that they've recorded and everyone is exactly the same in terms <laughs> of the dynamic and phrasing right. like i think that would make me sad so like sometimes when i'm writing music i won't always put in every single sort of phrase or dynamic marking or every articulation and that's not for um it's not to be lazy, you're lazy. yeah <laughs> right. it's it's because right. i want people to, to you know explore and, and take some time with with those things because that's part of the the music making that's so fun is if you're playing chamber music having those talks and saying what should we do here what do you think about this let's try this um i i enjoy that aspect and i think other composers are very you know they want everything exactly detailed in certain ways so i think it's just a a taste thing but that sort of works for me yeah um so a couple questions with the big trouble do you notate stuff or is it because it sounds largely improvisational is that how it's somewhat left like maybe uh, oh. you have some sort of pillars of you know ideas and then you go from there or is ultimately like these pieces notated um yeah a lot of them are notated although i will say like uh for some of the pieces that are sort of um drum set oriented and and also like pieces that have multiple drums happening mm -hmm. um there is room for that sort of thing like if i'm playing drum set i'm definitely not playing the same thing every performance um and i don't even think my drum set part is notated per se sure um and that's good i wouldn't want to do that i think i would want some room to to be creative within the structure of the song right um, so yeah it, they are notated and that's just for um like I remember playing at PASIC when we were playing with the brand new band of people, like right. fr friends of ours, but we had never performed together until then. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, so having it notated was very helpful. Yeah. We could send them the parts and they could learn it. And we got our, our one rehearsal the day before. And yeah. uh, luckily, you know, we, we chose people that, uh, that could make it happen and sound yeah. really good. So, and that kind of leads me to it. And, my next thought about this is um I mean, you're available for like residencies or like sort of seminars or um at schools or universities with the big trouble is that correct mm -hmm. yeah so how how does like 
so how does that work? I guess. So you can go into school and collaborate with like totally new people. Um, and, and that kind of ties back to the, your basic performance. Like these were all like people maybe you hadn't performed with before, but you're, you know, putting it together that the day before the morning That's before, whatever. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like, um, for these residencies, essentially the way it works is me and drew and madeline our vocalist madeline mcqueen we sort of we're sort of like that's the band and then we have you know we have a lot of parts and a lot of things that need to get played outside of our parts that we um will um you know we'll call on whoever we're playing with like if we're doing a residency at um tennessee tech university which we did last year before the pandemic essentially the percussion studio becomes our band, part of our right. band. Yeah. And cool. that's, that's sort of, um, the goal of those residencies is, um, not for us to play and for the students to watch, but for us to collaborate and for those students to be part of the big trouble for that event. Mm-hmm. And even more so than that, for them to help market and promote and learn a little bit about that side of, of things as well. So they mm-hmm. really become part of the group. Um, in a number of different ways, but that's how it works. And we send yeah. music beforehand so they can sort of get familiar. And more importantly, we send the audio track so they can hear the music, what it sounds like. Um, but those experiences have been great. Those uh, residencies have been wonderful. And honestly, like one of the coolest things is seeing Madeline, our vocalist, who does not come from the percussion world, right. sort of. Uh, <laughs> fun- she's she has found herself yeah. playing with marimbas and vibes and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, you know? cool. Um, which is pretty cool too, I think. Yeah, coexist with it. Um, mm-hmm. So, where did the name come from? The Big Trouble. Like every time I hear it, I want to think like the Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> but I'm sure it's outside of that. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think that, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, we were sort of uh, spitballing a few different options. Yeah. And um, there's a there's a coffee company called Counterculture uh-huh. that has a coffee called big trouble and i feel like that had something to do with this and and since yeah. since we envisioned sort of um a large ensemble a big ensemble that made sense mm-hmm. and since we were also playing music that cl- clearly doesn't fit the the typical percussion ensemble thing i felt like yeah. trouble was a nice word for that <laughs> yeah yeah you're gonna um, get in some trouble maybe. yeah a little yeah. bit and I and I did actually at Pasic we played on some uh, vibe vibes that Mallet Tech had uh, loaned us, and right. one of the pieces has um, like the the opposite ends of triangle beaters. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and it sounds beautiful, but right. uh, it might have left a mark. But okay. it's everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> he smoothed everything over. Yeah. Uh, so before we kind of transition to like your composition life, I did want to, and I threw out improvisation uh, kind of briefly. And maybe that's, it sounds like maybe how some of the, these pieces with the big trouble uh, start to take shape or form. And then you also, um, you know, I was scrolling through my Facebook feed the other day and there's Ivan Trevino um, playing like a snare drum improvisation. I and you, you know, the, and the copy was like, I'm, I don't really know what to play, so I'm just going to improvise right now. Is that like a couple of things? Is is that sort of part of your regimen, I guess, either daily or or whatever regularly? And do you? I mean, I hate to ask if you have a philosophy on improvisation, but does that sort of work its way regularly into your uh, either composition or performance or whatever? Um, yeah, that that um, that video was when i first got my snare drum from black swamp which sounds oh that's wonderful yeah great and i wanted to play something to show people that i got a new drum and because i thought it sounded great and it sounds wonderful and i just i started playing like de la clue stuff (laughs) and Mm -hmm. other stuff and it just like i just i don't know i said i think i'm just going to do something different so i started to improvise um just a little bit um and that's what came out and and honestly in the back of my head like i'm writing this um these sort of short etudes for um a program at juilliard um and so snare drum stuff has been in the back of my head already right 
and um and i knew like i want to do stuff with rem and snare like i like i like that combination of sounds um so like this improvisation that i did was not just to show people like i got this new drum but it's also um a creative outlet for me to start exploring compositional ideas that i'm going to use later sure um, and i think i'm definitely going to use some of that stuff so yeah like if i'm composing music for a particular project or thing um I will very much spend time just exploring sounds and creating sounds on that mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and at the same time, I, I might also um, completely step away from those instruments. Like I do a lot of singing into my, my voice memo and those yeah. ideas turn into pieces too. If the pieces, right. um, well, even snare drum pieces, uh, I, you know, I'll just drum sing or something. Right. So yeah, I guess like, Creativity That's, and improvisation, um, for me, go hand in hand with the music that I write. Yeah. And it's interesting. You, you said you sing because, and again, I was scrolling through my feed and <laughs> there's, and there's Ivan Trevino and there's a post that says, if you can sing it, you can play it. And you, so you're singing through, uh, I mean, it sounded like De La Cluse or maybe mm -hmm. it was something else and maybe, yeah, maybe it was, it was in the post and that's something I mean, I'm, I'm not involved in, in drumline or sort of the marching arts anymore, but when I was, that was something I would tell students, like drumline students, like, if you can sing this, you can play it. Like, it's almost like, I mean, it's obviously not visualization because you're verbalizing it, but it, to me, it's kind of the same concept. Like, if you can, if you can imagine yourself uh, shooting free throws and sort of sinking every shot or whatever, or you can, um, you can think through the music or you can sing through it, you, you know, it's that gives you sort of a better chance of playing it <laughs> yeah <laughs> like uh, that's exactly ahead. right i think the same way too uh i i often tell students that that are maybe having some trouble executing particular passages or mm -hmm. whatever the case is like to step away like let's go take a walk let's walk in time and just see if we can sort of audiate this thing because um, I sort of feel like once we start adding implements and different uh, techniques and all of this stuff right. that we have to do with our hands, like that's only going to make what we're doing harder. Right. And if we, if we're having a hard time taking it to the basic level of just making sure that we understand the rhythms that we're trying right. to execute, then it gets even tougher when we start playing four mallets or we start doing a bunch of different rudiments on the snare drum, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's been a whole thing of mine for a long time. And I think it honestly came from when I was really young sure. with my dad and how his, um, cause he writes a lot of songs too. And when he's teaching those songs to his bandmates, like uh -huh. they're just sort of exploring ideas and they're singing and he says, Oh, try this. Bup, 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 bup. And, and it, it, that sort of makes sense for me. Um, yeah. and that has stuck with me, I think even today. Yeah. Uh, now I'm remembering a thought that I tried to express earlier is not, you mentioned not overthinking it. And I think that sort of ties in a little bit like, okay, you got to separate yourself. And that's what Nate, what I was trying to say earlier, Nathan and I have to tell ourselves all the th all the time, like, okay, don't overthink this. Like, um, and let's sort of step back and, and figure out really what we want to do and not over kind of complicated. Um, yeah. So I guess transitioning to composition then, um, I mean, you were kind of talking about uh, improvising and starting to think through um, some textures, maybe some themes, um, you know, some exercises or some sort of improvisational exercises. Uh, so it sounds like that's how a lot of your compositions sort of take shape or begin to form. Yeah, that that's, that's correct. Um, it's very much like, it's very similar to, in my head to how I used to songwrite when I would play guitar mm. and sort of um, start to mumble, you know, <laughs> melodies or lyrics that didn't make sense, but just sort of right. creating that way. And, and it's very similar now. Like if I'm writing a marimba piece, 
there's usually some sort of uh, seed or motive that exists throughout the piece or that the piece is sort of based on, which is very similar to a, a songwriter, you know, having a, a seed and growing it into a song. Um, I think it's a songwriting thing, honestly. Sure. Um, and that's just, I, again, because of the background that I had, that that's comfortable for me. Like mm -hmm. creating in that way makes sense. Um, singing, it makes sense to me too. Um, oh, yeah, a lot of my marimba uh, pieces, like I'll sing a line and then I'll go to the marimba and figure out how to adapt it for the instrument. But I think hopefully when people leave a concert, maybe one of my pieces is on it. Um, hopefully they're not singing all of the 16th notes. They're like <laughs> singing the, the musical line. Right, um, sure. And, and I think that's because that's how a lot of those pieces were conceived, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, and then from there, um, in, in my brain, I have like this idea box that I sort of visit and I, and there's all these different terms and I've written some of this stuff down. Um, but like, if I ever get stuck, um, I, there's these words that I'll, I'll sort of think about like contrasts. Like, how do I use contrast to get out of here? How can I use range? How can I, um, what's the form? Am I exploring form enough? Like there's like, you know, hundreds of words that are sort of in this little idea box that just help me, um, you know, move on with the piece or, or sort of get past certain uh, points in a piece. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, like there's there's little seeds that on my voice memo um, <laughs> that no one will ever hear. They're yeah. just, just really bad, you know? Yeah. Um, Maybe so one I, day you, you just release like a voice memo compilation of like sort of I, yeah. <laughs> Ivan Trevino seats. <laughs> that sounds I found, weird. But. I found some old ones from like when I wrote um, Catching Shadows like back in 2013. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so like, uh, you know, some of these ideas won't turn into anything but that's part of the process too and that's mm -hmm. the thing that i'm starting to learn is i'm not putting all my chips into every single seed right right, right. like if it's if it can't grow then i'm just gonna let it be and maybe visit it later but i'm not gonna let it hold me back and i feel like when i was younger i'd come up with like a riff or something and i would do everything i could to to make that something um and and, and looking back on it now it's like and I think this is true for everyone. Like, I think we have more than just one or two seeds in us. Like yeah, we have sure. a lot of things that we can grow and um, we don't necessarily have to put pressure on ourselves to make uh, something great out of every little thing that we, um, you know, put out or whatever. Right. So, so moving back in time a little bit, like how did, like, how did your composition interest, I guess, take shape? Like when did that sort of, I mean, it, I mean, I guess I know the answer. You were doing it sort of with your family since you were a young child, but more, I guess, professionally or more in the sort of the orchestral percussion or like modern kind of percussion realm. Yeah. Well, I, I think I gravitated towards uh, musicians, percussionists who were writing their own music and playing their own music. Sure. Like Gordon Stout was a big influence. I played a ton of his music when I was younger. Michael mm -hmm. Burrett too. I played a lot of his music and um, it just made sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like, why would I just play covers? <laughs> like, <laughs> I wanna play music that I create. Um, yeah, sure. And there were examples of that already, you know, via Gordon, John Beck, my teacher who wrote a lot of music for percussion and timpani. Uh, Michael and so many others um, there was sort of a path that was starting to get created that I was able to just sort of hop on and follow um, but yeah that th those people in particular were big influences in terms of the uh, sort of classical percussion side of things yeah so speaking of influences this is something I usually ask kind of closer to the end of a podcast but since you brought it up uh, <laughs> like like what else um um, either musically or non-musically, you sort of you, um, pull influence of from, I guess, and uh, I mean, either for your composition or for your performance, but basically who, what kind of influences you? 
Yeah, that's a that's um that's a tough question because <laughs> every piece is different. Right. Some pieces are very much influenced by particular people or social events. Mm -hmm. Others are just influenced by the that moment of creating, you know. Yeah. Um so yeah, in in terms of musical uh influences, like when I was younger, I listened to a lot of like indie rock music. Uh, pop music, a lot of uh, Mexican music, like mariachi music. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like all of those things exist in my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that sort of ju is just represented of the work that I create and and how it sounds. Right. So so yeah, um, it's it's hard to say. Like you know, oftentimes today, uh, I don't listen to a ton of music. Um, and I think I'm okay with that. Like, yeah, I'm surrounded so by it a lot. You're not a big Harry Styles fan, then? <laughs> no, although okay. I like Harry Styles. Yeah, I, yeah, I like yeah. the way he dresses. Oh, yeah. um, I think that um, I don't listen to as much anymore. Yeah. I think I'm so like, um, there's so much music around me, and it, like it swims in my head a lot. Yeah. That when I when I have a moment to like have space, I think I just want to take that. Um, I think that's okay, you know, yeah. personally. Um, and I know some other composers that are the same way too. And plus, uh, me and my wife have uh, have two children now. Um, yeah. And that's sort of like the focus for us now, you yeah. know. Um, so there's less time to like, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into this obscure record. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't right. have that. I don't have that time anymore. Well, I just mentioned Harry Styles because I. Um, or Sean Mendez is, I think that's another younger yeah. uh, contemporary, like pop star. My, my, I have two girls, one's nine and 13 people. The couple people that listen to this podcast are probably tired of hearing about them. Cause I think I, <laughs> I think I mentioned my girls pretty frequently, but yeah, they're like Harry Styles fans or Sean Mendez fans. So we listen, um, to that in the car and i'm like okay this is actually really cool and well crafted and like, yeah like melodic and interesting and then and there's also like more contemporary music that's inspired by 80s or mm -hmm. that kind of vibe and style or sort of synth pop related and and so i do try to play this game sometimes i think they've caught on they're smarter than i give them credit for but well i'll be flipping around stations and one of them is sort of a you know 70s 80s at 90s and now station you know and uh, -huh. uh and i'll play something from that and i'll ask them okay is this a new song or an, an old song you know is this good you know and they're like yeah this is old we can tell I'm right like, oh, okay well <laughs> it sounds i don't know it sounds to me like it could be current but yeah some of the new stuff does have a vintage sort of vibe to it right um, and speaking on on uh, sean mendez who's like an amazing vocalist by the way sure um one of the members of my band, uh, his name is Patrick Laird, uh, in Break of Reality. He uh, he's like he's performed with Sean before. He played at like the MTV VMAs with Sean. Oh yeah, cool. All sorts of stuff. Um, and he can says, you get like, my, "Can you oh, get my that? nine? Can you get my nine year old an autograph?" <laughs> <laughs> I can. I can try. I can try. <laughs> no, it's <all> right. <laughs> anyway, uh, Sean's great. Uh, he's an amazing yeah. vocalist, actually. Yeah. Um, and I guess I, I said, I just said, I don't listen to a lot of music, but, um, yeah. obviously I listen to him enough right. to know about Sean. I will. Uh, and this is more for my dad. If he, he, he also listens to my podcast sometimes or the black swamp podcast. And he gave me a hard time because I referred to a, uh, uh, turntable as a record player. And he's kind of an audiophile. He was a, uh, speaker engineer, like a loudspeaker engineer for a long time. That was his oh, career. Cool. And, and I do collect albums and have a turntable and I refer to it as a record player. And he, I was talking the other day, he was like, Oh, Tim, like you, it's not a record player. It's a turntable. And I'm like, oh, sorry, Dan. That's one part of our thing that I uh, want to learn more about. Sure. Um, it, it is audio recording stuff. Sure. Because it makes such a big difference, obviously. Like my, my room here, I recently moved into a new studio. 
and it's um it's not treated at all you know sure. so it's super live and like i'm starting to look into things because i do a lot of recording and yeah um, i want to make sure that it's it sounds good you know so maybe maybe yeah. i don't know if your dad's into that part of the audiophile <laughs> stuff no, but not, uh yes and no i mean he it was largely car audio loudspeakers oh, cool. um uh he worked for a company called rockford fosgate or carbonaw back in the day or um trying to think of the some of the other uh, companies work for i'm drawing a blank right now but then he did get involved in more like studio like monitors and like smaller speakers or things like that cool. so yeah he's definitely uh, was into it. i mean when i first kind of started working at black swamp you know he's like well did you ever and we've recorded obviously sound samples and things and for our drums and tambourines and you know try to get as much as we can and he's like asking me about like spectral analysis or like <laughs> I don't know if that's actually a thing. I don't know. I just made that up, but like, you know, waveform analysis mm -hmm. and all, you know, I'm like, wow, dad, like, no, I, I haven't thought that deep about it, but, um, you like being able to kind of compare different shell types and sizes and things and look at waveforms and right. use that as sort of marketing, uh, material and, and ideas, which we do in a sense, but we try to we try to make it a little glossier, like, you know, sure. these, these sort of sort of buzzwords and no, things. Totally. For, yeah. uh, it makes such a big difference, though. Yeah. Um, like even when I'm composing, like um, after I get through singing or whatever the seeds are, like if I feel like a, a, a little seed is worth exploring, I'll throw it in the logic. Sure. And I'll explore from there. But like even there, like I want to make sure the sound libraries are, i'm using are like are, are good quality enough sure. to make me feel like the sounds being produced are going to replicate what it might sound like you know mm -hmm. um it makes a huge difference yeah uh, for me personally and we i mean we do a lot of audio and video recording especially the last couple years and like and that's kind of our, our, our point is to have the best quality representation of our instruments. And fortunately, I mean, Jamel, um, who's our VP of operations here, he's also has a lot of experience with recording and that kind of tech and stuff. And Nathan, who I mentioned previously has, you know, experience with audio and, and recording. Um, you know, I know enough to be dangerous, you know, I can use GarageBand <laughs> right now. Uh, obviously I had problems using zoom earlier. I'm not sure what happened there, but, uh, um, so yeah, we we're kind of set up that way. We do all of our own audio video stuff in house. So we try to make, um, you know, the best representation of our product. Cause we know our gear is expensive and, you know, especially we know a lot of college students and even high school students are purchasing our product or band directors or college departments and stuff. So we want to have the best possible representation for our product online, like visually what it looks like and, you know, you know, video and stills and, and then also uh, what it sounds like. And, you know, we'll throw some reverb on stuff here or there or, or tweak some things, but really, um, Jamel sometimes doesn't touch much at all because mm -hmm. we're, we're used, got high quality mics and high def video stuff and trying to, trying to produce the best quality audio video that we can. So nice. And, and high quality instruments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, you're right. I mean, it is when we talk about this stuff at work, it is kind of like all part of our concept. Like we want to have the best, um, best possible instrumentation and then the best possible representation of mm -hmm. that. So, um, let's see, I'm just scrolling through my notes here, trying to see what else we want to talk about. Um, sort of, you're also writing, uh, I know you have a blog and you've had, you know, several articles within the last couple of years and recently, um, about something that I think is really kind of a thread through a lot of your projects and, and, um, um, you know, the work that you're doing, and that is definitely diversity, equity, um, representation. Um, did that kind of develop over time? Is it something even from, you know, younger years that you were aware of and tried to communicate or how did yeah, that develop? That's, well, I think it has developed over the years. Yeah. Like I've always been aware that in classical music settings, there are probably aren't a lot of other people in the room that look like me you know sure. um 
And I think as like this new civil rights movement has been happening, um, it's just, I think it's put a focus for a lot of us uh, minority musicians um, to just realize um, how things are structured and built. And um, it, I, I, for me personally, it's given me more clarity to, to know that it's okay to speak out. It's okay to um, talk about representation. It's okay to, um, to sort of, uh, what's the right word? Like advo advocate for a more diverse looking classical music world. I feel like that's so important because as I think back to my younger years and even in college at Eastman, and even now to a certain extent, like there weren't a lot of people that I could look up to who, who looked like me that I could say, wow, like they're doing what I want to do, you know? Um, it, I, don't, I don't remember a ton of instances where that happened. Um, and I think that can be really meaningful for people, especially young people, especially people like me. Like I grew up in a really low income sort of situation um, in a small town where not a lot of people leave to go do anything. Um, so to see people excelling that might represent you in some way um, is important, you know. And I've had, or I've heard like my friend Josh Jones talk a little bit about this too. Um, you know, there, there's many things that minority musicians have to think about that, um, that not everyone does. You know, like for example, Josh mentioned this online the other day, like, you know, if he's walking to go practice and he's holding instruments, um, you know, he has to deal with the situation where somebody might say, hey, is that your stuff, you know? Right. Does or is, that belong or is to it, you? Right, does that belong to you? Or do you have your ID? Can I see it? Like, and um, that happens more than people think, you know? Right. And that can be very stressful. And that can cause some trauma too, you know? Like, it, and Josh mentions this, and I think about this a lot too. Like, ultimately, we as musicians just want to do music. <laughs> That's right. what we want to focus on. If I'm going to go practice somewhere... The last thing that I want to have to deal with is to exhaust energy on that type of situation. You know? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's so, definitely an unnecessary level of additional stress that, that uh, yes. involved in it. That's that's exactly right. And and there's layers to this too, like um, you know, in terms of like the faculty at typical classical conservatories definitely doesn't look like me or Josh typically. Right. Um, the audience typically doesn't either, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's this big move now to be more inclusive. Um, and, and honestly, like um, the way that I approach my songwriting and my music making has never been geared towards that typical classical music audience right. anyway. Um, and, I, and I'm hoping, you know, as people are opening up, um, you know, sort of realizing how important it is to diversify what uh, their institutions are doing, like, it's, it's also kind of necessary um, because the typical, like, classical, like, white classical 55 and older audience, it's like, they won't be around, like, forever. Like, we need, sure. we need a new audience. And I think, um, you know, embracing... Um, diversity, embracing a variety of different styles and genres is, is going to be like crucial to, right. to keep uh, our field sustainable. Right. I mean, one of sort of the main, I, I try to come up with titles for podcasts sometimes, like what, you know, what's the kind of the main message here. And, and I wrote down even before we started speaking is diversity in music and message. Like, and I guess that's, I was hoping I didn't misspeak when I said, um, you know, you were in, you know, your composition life or your collaborations or your projects that, you know, you, there's this thread of sort of awareness or uh, representation, but I feel like there is maybe unintentionally even because of the diversity in genres and, and your past, you know, experience. And as 
a Mexican American player, you know, percussionist and musician, mm -hmm. and sort of that that is is bleeding into your your music, sort of natural diversity, I guess. No, um, I, yes, that is definitely correct. Um, it always has, right? And I just never viewed it through the lens of race or diversity. Yeah. And as I've gotten older, I've realized like you know, the, the music that I write is in part because of my upbringing, <laughs> right. and the music that I played. And, and I, and I think, um, just the, the civil rights movement that we're in now has led me to be more vocal and to advocate for equity in, right. in a very clear way to have sometimes to have difficult conversations yeah. with, with people and loved ones. And it's not an easy thing to do. And, yeah. and, you know, honestly, it's not like, necessarily um i don't know like there i think it can be stressful as a person of color to to take it upon themselves to yeah <laughs> like sure. fix stuff too but i think there's a balance uh with me personally like sometimes we do have to have those conversations um and you know i've i've been happy and uh, able to to advocate for for those things because they mean a lot to me yeah. and um I think I think people really, um, especially uh, people of color, I feel like they're just sort of tired of status quo stuff, and they're ready for change. And sometimes, um, you know, that means speaking out. And you know, in my recent blog post, um, I think I got a lot of support from it. But I think other people may have felt like, you know, I don't know if an, an all-white roster is always bad, but. Um, I kind of feel like we have to we have to try we have to push people like I don't yeah. think it's 2021 like we can't be there anymore right. you know yeah no if we have these conversations at work honestly like um, it is 2021 like <laughs> it's things need to change and to be different and and part of our conversation is whose responsibility is it um, you know I've had that that those conversations with Jamel regularly um, who's african-american and our vp of operations at work and he's like i think there are some people of color that believe that it's not my responsibility at all like right. you know white white middle-aged white guys like me have a pretty good gig going so it's sort <laughs> of our responsibility to figure you know figure it out but uh, you know is is that um demographic going to i am not necessarily so jamel's like i think like you're saying um needs to be a voice and and advocate and then also part of our conversation is you know what is my responsibility what is a black swamp's responsibility and i have these conversations with my wife too she's a graphic designer so what's her role even as a in her occupation kind of her sphere of influence in the design choices that she's making just like Mm -hmm. What are, what are my decisions? What am I, what decisions am I making at work that are going to help kind of propel this conversation or, or move things forward and, and push for, um, you know, equality and representation and things that are legitimately important to, to our team. And, um, so yeah, those are conversations we have all the that, time. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's great. And honestly, uh, that's part of the reason why, uh, I gravitated towards black swamp to begin with um yeah. it's because you're not um some people just view it view running a business as that sure <laughs> with no sure. So, sort of social responsibility yeah. um but i love that about black swamp and i feel like um you guys are a great example for other companies to follow in terms yeah. of uh, those social issues, which I think are so important. Um, and it goes even beyond like, you know, like I, I wrote a piece recently for guitar, mm -hmm. um, where the players, uh, share a guitar and they use like little sticks to play on it. And I decided to notate that piece in tablature. Um, and for me, tab is like an accessible way to learn guitar music. Um, yeah. And I think some people might shy away from writing in tab because it's not as maybe formal as traditional notation. But that's just one example of trying to make the music that I do more accessible to people and access yeah. and affordability and equity. Like all that, like they're all, they all share characteristics, you know? Sure. Um, 
And that's one, that's like one of the focuses that I've had a lot recently is just like the affordability of things and trying to make things accessible to people. Um, because that can ultimately, I think, help make things more equitable too. Yeah. And that was sort of one of my final questions, like moving forward, like what intentional steps, I guess, were you planning to, to take in your composition or, or collaborations and projects that you're doing? And that obviously sounds like one of them, like making things, um, making your music more accessible, like even just how people read it, you know, and that means, you know, different people can, can play it that may yeah. not read standard notation, whatever. That that's exactly right. Um, and, and I think also, uh, like encouraging uh, people to um, to be creative in their own music making. That's a big thing for me. Hmm. Um, it sort of, it doesn't make me sad, but it makes me like, I want to see more young musicians when they're learning percussion to have some sort of experience creating music too. Like to have hmm. those things work hand in hand because I feel like they inform each other. Um, and I feel like there's many, many percussionists that have a lot of good music and creativity in them in terms of maybe writing music or improvising music that um, they might not be exploring. Sure. And that's that's a big thing for me is to just encourage creativity. Um, I think that that can really be helpful, especially to young musicians as they grow up, as they're looking for their own voice. Um, I think writing music is a, can be a big big part of that um and i've been advocating for that for a long time but like i released this this project called co-write uh, over the pandemic which is essentially like a lot of little musical seeds that i've created mm -hmm. that i want people to explore and grow and make right. their own um and that's that sort of falls in line with that thinking i think um, yeah um yeah well you got amazing things going on, Ivan. Thanks, I, man. I appreciate it, it. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing it all with me. And I know we're just kind of more recently, like, officially working together. But I totally look forward to, like, whatever collaborations or projects we can um, work on together in the future. I already have some ideas going. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like awesome. Just, no, I've just seen, like, sort of the improv stuff that you're doing um, on social media and and I know you already have some other kind of educational things in the works that um, I'm looking forward to to possibly collaborating on. So, but thanks for the last hour plus and the my, conversation. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you so much um, for everything. Thanks for having me. Thanks for um, having amazing instruments. Um, and thanks for the convo. This has been a BSP production, recorded and produced out of the Black Swamp Percussion Facilities in Zealand, Michigan. Audio production assistance by Nathan Coles. Intro and outro music by Adam Hopper. Music sprinkled throughout the episode featured works by The Big Trouble and Break of Reality, as well as several original compositions performed by Ivan, including Wildlings and Catching Shadows with special guest Michael Burrett. Links to all music can be found in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening.